Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Today, it's my great pleasure to have on the Hey Salespeople podcast, Scott Sands. Scott is the global practice leader for Salesforce effectiveness at Aon Consulting. Welcome to the show, Scott. Thank you, Jeremy. Glad to be here. Scott and I had the pleasure actually of totally coincidentally meeting face-to-face at a conference that was being held at Stanford University last week, where we got to hear a lot of great wisdom from the academic sector. So maybe we'll share a bit of that today. Yep. It's nice to see innovation being driven in the academic environment and enough practitioners there to try to pick up that and use it in a way to drive value in their organizations. Yeah, there were some interesting things that were almost too theoretical to use, but then there were some things that were (laughs) incredibly practical. And and I loved when they had academics present their research to groups of practitioners to respond on how they would actually integrate that or not into their businesses. Today, we're going to talk about the virtuous cycle versus the death spiral when companies miss revenue, but perhaps make earnings and how CFOs and sales leaders react to that. But before we get into that, we'll do what we often do here on the podcast, which is uh, two questions I love to start out with. The first is, Scott, can you share with us your favorite sales book of all time and why? I started in this business 25 years ago. And one of the books that really shaped the way I think about sales forces and how to better manage them as living, breathing organizations was Churchill Ford and Walker's original Salesforce management, which I think has new authors now. But it was just so user-friendly and logical in terms of how it breaks down planning to go to market with your Salesforce and building out the structure and the talent and the processes. It made perfect sense to me. One of my favorites is The Relationship-Based Enterprise by Ray McKenzie. That is a book that I think beat a lot of the solution selling methodologies to market a good while ago, really with a a segmented view of how do your buyers value what you sell and how should you go to market differently based on the value that they get from your product or service, not not based on how you want to structure it. What's Um, an example of where you would have that contextual difference between those two different value go-to-market strategies? Uh, Let me see if I can give you a fairly generic example. Uh, Let's say a software package that helps, well, let's say CRM, CRM software package, right? There are organizations that buy CRM because they know they need to, they know they're supposed to, and they use it to micromanage Salesforce activity and forecast for the CFO. So the CFO is really getting the value out of CRM in that scenario. Same product. A different company, the head of marketing is really driving it because that company has a, an omni-channel sales approach. They have web presence, they have telesales, they have branches, physical locations, brick and mortar, and they want to be able to understand how customers are using their products and services interacting with them. And that's the real value that if they can come off as very knowledgeable to those customers then those customers stay and spend more with them. And so that's an upside value. And so those are two different buyers of a CRM package that's the same product, but the value of that package is completely different. The CFO may have a very high value for it, but it could really be 
interpreted by managing shareholder expectations against the quarterly earnings opportunity and, and revenue growth. But I tend to believe that, that marketing, that head of marketing is going to have a higher ROI for that product. Tying the value of your product to the specific needs of the specific individual, which is all the more complex in a consensus sale where you probably have the CFO and the CMO and the CIO, right. and potentially head of sales, right? All of those would probably sure. be involved in that CRM purchasing decision. So you need to basically build that relationship value story with each of them individually, but then also bring them all together. I stopped you at two books, but were there any others? Because I know the listeners well, love recommendations. I'm currently reading uh, Cracking the Sales Management Code because the analytics and the quantitative side, I'm a former engineer. Uh, I come at this from from very quantitative uh, viewpoint and what can we do to build a model to understand what's going on and to identify where values leaking out of our process or where we have levers or dials that we can turn to increase performance. Love that book. And I, I recommend the follow-on book as well, which is called Crushing Quota. They're both fantastic books. And I share your background too. I, I can relate to being a, an electrical engineer and then moving into into sales ultimately. That's a that's a whole other conversation. Well, it, it, it is. I mean, at that conference we were attending in Stanford, there was some discussion about what is the new profile, the new talent profile of, of a salesperson. And it's not just somebody who's an extrovert and who is ambitious and number and performance driven in a solution selling environment, it may very well be that we're missing the opportunity to turn more engineers into problem solving salespeople. That point actually is a really good one because that was one of my favorite parts of the conference. I imagine you're drawing from the very intimate and very lucky time we got to spend with Mark Hurd, the CEO of Oracle, and he was mentioning how they've dramatically changed their hiring strategy. And I think he said, we realized that trying to, the company's basically trying to steal mediocre salespeople from their competitors. And then getting rid of training was a failing strategy. And that Oracle then went, I don't know if it's back to the future, back to the past. And then was started hiring new college grads and then really putting into place exceptional training programs. And obviously it takes years to get that going. But we asked, the, the group asked Mark, like, what do you look for? And he said, they hire from, I think, 27 schools, and I looked that up, and it's basically the top 30-ish schools. Then the next thing is that GPA matters a little bit, and I also looked that up, and I think they have a 3.2 or a 3.3 GPA cutoff. And then the third thing, which I thought was most interesting, was he said, there's a lot that doesn't matter, but the interesting, subtle thing that does matter a lot is the diversity of their extracurricular experiences. If they were in band and volleyball, that diversity of experience is a killer combination. Why do you think that diversity of extracurricular experience is so valuable? You know, it's interesting when we talk about the analytics side of it, there are new tools that a lot of companies are using to map the networks that their people have. So you get this uh, beautiful picture of, and you know, you've got LinkedIn, you've got all of this as, as inputs, but I've got, you know, 5,000 external connections, uh, 350 of them are in the C-suite and some of them are in the HR function, the finance function. Plus you've got your own internal organization. Aon's a 50,000 employee firm across 140 countries or something like that. And what a lot of people are finding with those analytics when they start doing 
serious regression analysis and trying to predict who is going to be the better seller. It's the people with the better internal networks that are the better sellers, more so than the people with the better external networks. I, I think that probably has its limits up, up to a point. You can't have zero external network. But I, I think it goes back to the solution selling. It goes back to if I was in band and I played baseball and I uh, you know, was in the Taekwondo club, I can probably connect with people in finance to get my pricing approved. I could probably connect with people in operations to get my product shipped. I can probably connect with people in product management to get a new feature built onto something customized. That uh, versatility and that flexibility to be able to work with different types of people on behalf of a customer. That's speculation, but uh, it, it feels like the right narrative to fit around some of this new thinking. Yeah, I agree. And you do hear that magic word that you just mentioned used quite a lot in hiring decisions these days, which is versatility. And that's versatility in the context that you talked about, which is connecting internally and externally. It's I think it's also versatility in learning that if you're willing and able to invest your time in multiple extracurricular activities, it's likely that you have that learning mindset and that growth mindset a little more so. The last question I got to ask so people get to know you is, what's the first thing you ever remember selling as a kid? Well, as a consultant, it's, I think, appropriate that the first thing I remember selling was my time. <laughs> um, I, 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 whether it was dog sitting or, uh, or, or something else like that, you know, it was a service. It was an intangible. I was selling uh, peace of mind, clearly, that someone could go on vacation and leave their dog with me. I'm such a huge animal lover that I would probably pay people to watch their dogs at this point. <laughs> uh, awesome. So let's get into the virtuous cycle and the death spiral. So can you frame that up a little bit? What is it that you're observing? Well, it, it's, it's interesting. It's something that we've been seeing with our clients, you know, half, half of our clients, let's say, over the past four or five years. And I think back to my grandfather who lived through the Great Depression, and it, it changed him at a genetic level almost to, to the point where his savings and spending habits were shaped for the next 70 years. You've got a generation of CFOs that led companies through the 2009 recession who are, you know, you can hear them each quarter reporting results to Wall Street. And what you hear is, yep, we grew earnings. You know, we hit our earnings expectations, but we missed our revenue growth expectations. You go, well, that's, you know, we care about earnings. Earnings, we, we, I remember 2000 of the dot-com bubble where there were a bunch of companies that went out of business because they didn't have any profits. And, you know, we swore we'd never get fooled by that again. We want companies with profits. So growing earnings is pretty good. They miss revenue. That's okay. But ultimately, you scratch the surface and you realize that's unsustainable. But the next action is what decides whether it's the virtuous cycle or the death spiral. For the virtuous cycle, you have to then say, well, I made earnings. Let me take some of those earnings and invest them in more salespeople, or as you mentioned earlier, training, better training to improve the productivity of my salespeople. Something that is, is an investment. But what you tend to see happen with half of these companies is they then go to, well, let's cut costs. You know, if the sales force isn't getting it done for us, the only way we're going to make earnings next quarter or next year is if we cut costs further. So we have a thousand salespeople, let's take 50, 100 of them out. And we were a billion dollar company 
So we needed each salesperson to sell a million. If we have 10% fewer, we need them to sell 10% more. So let's increase their quota. You know, we're going to do a pure top-down goal-setting process. And what we're seeing in the marketplace is quota attainment for salespeople, which is a metric we track, is lower now in 2019 than it was in 2009 at the bottom of the recession. And that's disturbing. And so what we're concerned about, and you can track it back too, you can even look at you know, the Bureau of Labor Statistics. In 2007, there were 17 million people that were classified as salespeople in the United States. And that's B2B um, and B2C, I would presume, right? Correct. Yeah, there's a lot of retail in there and, and other things too. But you know, just a statistic to start with. By 2010, that was down to 15 million. So 2 million people gone there. Then you get, you know, in the last five years or so, five or 10 years, people have been talking about, well, sales as a career doesn't really have a future. Amazon is, is going to be everything. It's all going to be online. It's all going to be digital. But since 2010, we've added a million salespeople back into the economy. So we're up to 16 million now, probably up a little bit more than 16 million. But we're still a million short. And my feeling is, yeah, Amazon killed half a million of those jobs. But I think we're still half a million salespeople short in the marketplace because not as many people are doing what you and I heard Mark heard from Oracle talking about, which is investing in training new salespeople to be successful in that career, to build the skills, and whether they continue selling at Oracle for the rest of their lives or whether they go to a new tech startup in Palo Alto or whether they start their own business, we're not building a pipeline of talent in sales. Anyway, the death spiral continues because then the people that are still left in sales aren't earning as much, and so you get more turnover. So you have fewer salespeople, and guess what? You miss your revenue goal. You miss your revenue plan again the next quarter. And so that, that behavioral spiral continues where well, if we missed our revenue goal, we need to cut more heads or we need to cut more programs. I've seen the story play out and I, I think you're spot on with what the cure is. Unfortunately, chief sales officers have the shortest tenure of the C-suite. You know, 22 months, I believe, is the average tenure of a head of sales. So they are moving in and out of organizations quickly. And so they probably don't feel as secure or as strong in their positions to be able to say, no to a CFO or no to a CEO that we can't keep cutting this or we will destroy the organization. But if a new CEO comes in and brings a, a chief sales officer in with them, they may have a, a, you know, a tacit agreement that we're going to do the same thing we did at the other company where we were successful. And we're going to turn the death spiral around and reinvest, build out sales, and start to do this. And you know what's telling is you're seeing private equity firms that have a playbook around cutting. They're starting to add sales effectiveness operating partners to their permanent staff. So they're realizing their companies they bought five years ago that they wanted to have on their books and they cut, 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 cut. And then they were getting ready to, you know, at five years, a private equity company wants to have that, get that company off their books, take them public, sell them but they weren't able to establish good enough growth rates to do that. And so now they're starting to build this capability. And a lot of that is around talent. They're realizing 
hey, we've got to be able to add good quality salespeople into the organization quickly in order to start driving this growth. And if we've got a five-year plan for this company, we need to be doing it in years two and three so that they're ramped up in year four and they're hitting full productivity in year five so that we get the maximum multiple for that organization. If you want to hit a goal literally multiple years out, you need to start hiring and training right now to do that. One of my first ever clients when I I started in the consulting world, we came in and, and the CEO said, all right, I want to double the size of this business in five years. And his hypothesis was, okay, I've got a 200 person sales force now. That means I need a 400 person sales force in five years. And I got assigned to do the analysis for how that worked out. And I started looking at, okay, so what's the average book size and what's the retention rate and how many new clients, new customers are they selling and what's the upsell and expansion rate? And you start putting that math together and it's a compounding thing, but then you factor in ramp ups and everything else. And you go, you have to go from 200 salespeople this year to 350 next year, or you've missed it. And so a lot of people throw that big, hairy, audacious goal out there. of We're going to double in five years and they wait for the organization to wrap their arms around it. But if you're not moving on expanding your sales force within 18 months, you've already missed the window because you can't add fast enough in years three, four, and five to make it there. Yeah, you definitely have to front load. In terms of adding that many salespeople, right, it's easier said than done. How do you advise people to make that sort of a ramp when they've been hiring, I would assume, just to you know, grow a little bit, cover the people who turn over? Assuming we're going to do it organically, right? We're not, we're not going to do it through acquisition, which you know, that's another thing that deserves a complete additional conversation around what you pay as a premium to acquire a company versus what the investment is that's required to grow organically and which one is better, a better fit for you. So the first thing we start with is understanding the sales potential in the market. Let's segment the market. You have a product and you sell into uh, transportation companies, logistics, warehousing, retail and wholesale companies. Well, I can go into Dun & Bradstreet, pull those SIC codes and tell you there are 800,000 companies that fit in those SIC codes. And I can take the number of employees or the square footage of retail or warehouse space they have. I can take statistics out of Dun & Bradstreet or, or another source and create a proxy for sales potential for you based on comparing it to what you've already sold. So, you know, I had a client at one point that said, hey, um, we need you to help us build out our Asian sales force because we think we've nailed all the top customers, but we don't know what tier two and tier three looks like. And so we went into that process of, you know, assessing what was actually out there at the account level. A lot of marketing executives will tell you, well, it's a $10 billion market and it's growing at 11% a year, but that doesn't give a salesperson or a sales manager enough actionable information to do something differently on Monday morning. We do it at the account level. You say, well, client, you thought you had tier one. You're actually in tier three. All of your customers are in tier three. You're missing Mitsubishi and Toyota and Sony. And you know, you're missing all of these companies that we've identified and can say, 
you know, that have this much opportunity in them. So figuring out where the opportunity is, number one, because you may be able to go get that in fewer accounts rather than having to, you know, you may be able to do that with 100 new sales reps instead of 200 if you place them in the right locations. So, you know, that's a big start. Looking at channels, what can we do with channels? Can we leverage indirect channels? Can we use telesales more effectively? One of the elements that gets missed in the death spiral is as you're reducing Salesforce heads, they tend to hand the accounts for people that left out to the people that remain. And we'll walk into companies sometimes and, and ask how many accounts they're covering. And they're covering 120 accounts. And we say, okay, well, how much selling time do they have? Well, we think all their time is selling. Why don't we actually find out that only 40% of their time has been selling? So 800 hours. Well, what's the customer touch model? Well, we expect them to call on these customers once a month. So 12 sales calls a year times 120 accounts, 1,440 sales calls. And I've got 800 hours to do that. So the first thing you tell them is, you know, with that level of math, with that level of back of envelope math, I guarantee you half of those accounts aren't being touched. Right. If you were to hit everyone, you're just hitting them with a few minutes. Right, right. So they're not being touched. So it's no wonder you're not hitting quota. You can give these people more and more accounts. You're not going to hit, you're not going to hit their goal because they can't touch all of them. So let's take the smallest and move them to inside sales, or let's understand which ones are buying on price only, and let's streamline our selling process to them. We've got to get smarter. It can't be, hey, we've got one job, sales rep, and we apply that sales rep to one type of customer. We have to be smarter about knowing how much opportunity, how they buy, have different types of sales reps. This is going to go through an indirect channel. It's going to be managed by a channel manager, which is going to expand our reach quickly. These types of accounts are going to go through inside sales because they've got six selling hours a day because they don't have to travel where field rep only has three selling hours a day. Then these others where we've identified millions and millions of dollars of incremental opportunity are going to go to strategic account managers that are going to develop really high touch relationships with C-suite level buyers at, at those organizations. And we're not just going to use our own historical revenue for that. We're going to use potential. And that's why when you ask me what my favorite books are, I go back, unfortunately, 20 or 30 years because those are still disciplines that are not being picked up. You know, lots of companies are, are jumping on the trend for Challenger or for something else. And they're leaving the, the fundamentals aside because the fundamentals take work. Yeah, I mean, we do tend to swing between one polarity and another. And you just mentioned another thing that was discussed at the Stanford Sales Thought Leadership event, which was this concept of moving from standalone inside sales where people don't travel, right? They're glued to their desk one way or the other. And then separate field sales where each of the field salespeople more or less operates out of their home and they travel around and do their thing into a hub concept where that hub has inside sellers and has field sellers, but they're associated with an office and then they have all the supporting resources around that salespeople, product specialists, sales engineers, solutions consultants, whatever you want to call them, you know, potentially field marketing support, right? That that hub is a self-contained sales and service and marketing commercial unit. Is that something that you've seen, something you guys recommend? Obviously, it depends on context. Yeah. 
Well, so let, let me throw a few things out in response to that. I mean, first off, when we, we talk about the death spiral, we talk about not having as many salespeople out. Inside sales is the fastest growing segment of salespeople in the marketplace. Um, now, I know that's not what you asked. You asked, what about the hybridization? The interesting challenge with that is I have clients that are wrestling with you know, the changes in FLSA rules that an inside sales rep, something that is labeled an inside sales rep is non-exempt versus a field sales rep meets a criteria and is exempt. So I don't have to track overtime for a field rep, but I have to track overtime and pay overtime for an inside rep. So when you hybridize that, you've got some sales leaders and HR leaders that are struggling with, what am I expected to do here? Um, what do I have to do? How can I pay these people? Should they all be commissioned? Should I have them all salary? There are some regulations that are not keeping up with the evolution of the market. But absolutely, we're seeing companies forge ahead and create hybridized roles because of advances in technology and changes in the way customers want to buy. And they're right to do that. They're always going to be middle ground, difficult to navigate places that uh, require multiple skills. I have clients that try to do an inside-outside pairing, and then they would find that it just doubled their cost, or the field rep was using the inside rep as a lead gen resource. But it really takes some thinking. I mean, I, I talked about segmentation earlier, but how your coverage model is going to work to align with the customer buying process and deliver the most selling power for you for the cost that you're putting into it is, a, is an exercise I don't think enough companies really sit down and hammer out. I'd like to just spend a few minutes kind of reflecting on our conversation and recapping for the listeners some of the key takeaways. What do you want to leave folks with? Well, I think the metaphor I use often, it's your cost of sales is like your gas mileage. You can get great gas mileage. You know, I'm coasting downhill on the interstate, drafting behind a, a semi. As long as I'm going downhill, I can get 80, 90 miles to the gallon. And you can reduce your cost of sales if you're willing to stay flat to single digits down in revenue, if you're just riding a market out. But at some point when you want to grow again, you're going to have to put your foot on the gas and, and the gas mileage is going to drop. And you need to expect that. And if you have a larger organization and you've sequenced things and you staggered things so that you've got new entrepreneurial divisions popping up and they require some investment, but that's offset by cash cow, large divisions that you're harvesting and how that all plays together. But the startups know it. You know, the startups in Silicon Valley know that they have to spend the money to grow and they don't hesitate to do it. Some of that's because they tend to have great gross margins. It's the multi-billion dollar companies that have forgotten what it feels like to start up and grow a business from scratch. And they've been coasting downhill for years and years. And they, they panic a little bit the first time they, somebody asked them to put the foot on the gas and they watch their gas mileage go from 90 to 15. That's, I think, what we need to commit to, to get the economy growing, to build, to penetrate new markets, all of the things that everybody's talking about they want to accomplish. And context is important as well, that um, things that worked, ways that you could add heads or add sales capacity in a 10% unemployment market don't work anymore in a 3.6% unemployment market. 
I think some organizations have been a little spoiled that the employment situation has improved, but wage growth has not been as high as perhaps it might normally be in a recovery. So that's bad for families, great for people that want to grow inexpensively. Well, the wage growth is going to catch up. It is catching up. And to hire even mid-level salespeople from a competitor, you're going to pay a premium much less top performers. And if your recruiters are another function that you, uh, you scrapped in the last recession, you may not have the recruiters on board that can find you or identify who the top people are. So you'll wind up paying a premium for their low performers. So, you know, again, it's another reason why the training investment is important. I think the other is the bad rap that millennials have gotten. People say, well, I hear from clients, millennials don't want to sell. And I don't think it's the millennials don't want to sell. I think that uh, there are, I, I have a daughter who would be a great salesperson. But if you hire that millennial to go into a territory that was most recently occupied by someone who came in at 50% of quota, hung around for 18 months and quit, and by the way, after they'd sold a couple of things, the senior salespeople on either side of that territory pulled those accounts over into their territory. Now you have a territory that didn't support someone that's been looted of the few good accounts it had. And we're going to bring a new millennial in or a new, a new hire in and put them in that territory, put them on a really aggressive 40-60 commission plan and expect them to be successful with no training. It's we've forgotten what that we have to rebalance those territories. We have to take accounts away from the senior people and give them to the junior people. And that's yep. not baked into anyone's instincts anymore. Yeah, I was totally with you. I will say to SalesLoft's credit, we actually did that in the beginning of our fiscal year because of exactly that problem is that you would hire new people in and you put them into terrible territories. So by redistributing the territories and making sure that we carved out great opportunity for new sellers. We were able to keep the yep. growth the growth engine going. But I just want to thank you, Scott, so much for, for taking the time to chat. If people do want to connect with you or message you, what's the best way to get to you? Scott.sands at aon.com. Awesome. And our, our LinkedIn connections, welcome from legitimate people. Absolutely. From legitimate people all the time. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.